This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome into the Autzen Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Bream. Eric Scopel is with me on the show as always. And today is Wednesday, which means it's mailbag week. We are going to answer all your biggest questions going into this football game uh, against Cal on Saturday. We've also got basketball in full swing for uh, both the men and the women. Hey, uh, the men play today, tonight in Omaha. So we've got a full slate of stories, a full slate of coverage for football, for men's basketball, for women's basketball. The women played uh, Monday night against Portland. So there's a lot going on in the Oregon universe, and a lot of fans have their attention on all aspects of Oregon athletics. We're going to break it all down here in the Mailbag Podcast. But first, I want to remind you guys, you can subscribe today for $1 for your first month to DuckTerritory.com. Join our VIP community. Uh, We are inching ever closer to... Uh, our all-time high in, in subscriptions, and we're you know trending to surpass that here in uh, quite a you know couple weeks, and hopefully we can get there. And you can help us do that by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com for for one dollar, and by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com, hey, that ensures that uh, you're supporting the podcast. It's the most impactful way for Oregon, uh, for, excuse me, for you to. To support the show. Um, it, it ensures that Eric and I can continue doing this on such a regular basis. Uh, and we can do this, what, what, Eric, three or four times a week right now. Pretty crazy. Um, and that's the most impactful way. So if you can, subscribe today for $1 for your first month. Now, on to the questions of the week. Six mailbag questions. Uh, you can submit these either through Twitter. Uh, just message Eric on, school, uh, on Twitter. Uh, Eric underscore Scopel, or you can hit them up on duckterritory.com and submit your questions as well. All right. This week we're starting with at Johnny the K. One of the primary reasons being touted for Oregon's loss to the Beavers, and in fact the team's overall poor performance this year, is youth. Do you buy that? I like this question because it's direct and it's to the point. Matt, Mario Cristobal has certainly, I don't want to say use this as an excuse, but he's certainly noted numerous times the youth of this Oregon team. Um, and he hasn't said it's an excuse, but to a certain extent, he's opening the door for interpretation there. What, what's your take on this, Matt? Do, do you think this team being as young as they are, because they are extremely young, like you look at, I mean, you just look at this offense, and this is a really successful offense right now. They're almost all freshmen and sophomores, or at least players that haven't started before. And you look at this defense, a little bit more veteran in the secondary, a little bit more veteran on the front, but still a lot of really young players playing a lot of snaps. What's your take on that? Oh, um, I, part of me thinks that is a factor and it's not a factor. I think on Saturdays or on game day, um, I think it's a factor in the days leading up to that game. Um, earlier this week, Jalen red had said that 
you know, this team, the difference between this year's team and maybe the previous seasons is that you know, Oregon would approach a game last year knowing, hey, we're the best team out here. We're, we have the best players on this roster and we're going to dominate and have that sense of confidence in them. Um, and this year, you know, he said that's a little bit different from, you know, previous years. And it's, he didn't say it's, you know, our, 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 he didn't point fingers at anybody or anything of that nature. But I, I think this is a young team that's learning the rigors that's required of them to perform at a high level on game day starts on Sunday when they have their first practice of the week starts on Monday when they have film uh, starts on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, which are their heavy days of football practice. That's their full contact days. Walk through Thursday, fast Friday. Um, there's, there's so many young guys on either side of the football that are in critical moments and that, that are, you know, key reserves as well that, you know, previously they haven't gone through the rigors of a college football season, you know, a ton of times there's one, one year of experience, two years of experience, and they're learning the process of, Hey, you know what? If you want to have the year that we all want to have, we can't have an off week in practice. You just can't have that. And that's where I think Oregon's youth is showing up in, in that the ink maybe the ink, we don't get to watch practice, but right. you see the inconsistencies in practice pop up with young teams and that plays out onto a game. And it wouldn't surprise me if throughout this course of this four, what, five games, four games of the season, um, Oregon has had probably some up and downs in terms of consistency in practice. Well, and you have to remember too, like a lot of their shortcomings, and let's just focus on the defense because I, I, again, I think the offense has been. Good. The offense is not the issue right now. I mean, they're one of the best from a statistical perspective in the conference, but you, you need to have leadership and you need to have game reps. And there are players who are playing a lot right now who don't have a ton of that, especially at Oregon. And obviously these players are highly regarded high school recruits. These players are highly regarded junior college transfers or they're, they were highly regarded before they came to Oregon, they've had some time in the program, but have kind of had to wait for their time. But I, you know, I think one of the things that did stand out, you know, and maybe this isn't maybe youth as much as it is just inexperience. But one of the things that both Mario Cristobal and defensive coordinator Andy Avalo said on Monday was was just that from a tackling perspective, from some of those fundamental issues they're having, it was just a lack of a full off season. And I think that plays, and it kind of ties in here with the youth part. But I think that plays to me almost a little bit of that's, that's the bigger factor for me. I think that gets overlooked is that this has been a really bizarre off season. And some of the things you're seeing defensively are fundamentals are technique driven. And there are shortcomings there that I think you can almost directly point to just not having had a full off season of not being able to really go through a typical summer conditioning, the fourth quarter program of not being able to have a full sprint of having a limited fall of having no mop-up, blowout, non-conference games in terms of building some of those reps and experiences of like, typically right now, this is Oregon's fifth game of the season on, on Saturday against yeah. Cal. That'd be their second conference game of the year. And you would have had three kind of like, hey, we're going to play Montana. We're going to play Portland State. We're going to play Idaho State, whoever. And you're going to win that game by a bunch. It's going to be a good opportunity to just kind of gain some of that, that confidence that Jalen Red mentioned on, on Tuesday of like, you're reminded of how dominant you are physically in part because you get to go out there and you just get to just destroy some teams. Oregon hasn't been able to do that. And I, I just think that plays a role too. Um, and, and you see them missing tackles regularly. You see them 
uh, not being able to impact the games, especially defensively like you're used to. And offensively, you're seeing some of that youth at quarterback. I don't think there's any question about that. You know, I, Oregon probably wins this game against Oregon State if Tyler Shuck doesn't throw that interception in the third quarter. Yep. Um, fourth, early fourth quarter. And I, this is not Tyler's fault. I don't think it's the offense's fault, but that was a disastrous outcome right there. Um, Oregon State picks up a ton of momentum there. And to Tyler's credit and the offense's credit, they come out the next drive, go down the field, they take the lead back. Um, I mean, but, if, they, if, they had, if they had even just scored a field goal instead of turning the football over, they didn't even have to score a touchdown. Or, if, or honestly, if they just had moved it to midfield if, and, and punted it. And right. That would, like, I was just going to say, maybe if they even just took three minutes off the clock it, with a drive. Yeah. Totally. So, I mean, these are just these small little things. These games are... Again, and that's what he brought up, the small little things. Yeah, it's in a microcosm. It's four to six to... As Shuller Shuck said today, of it's like it's four to six plays on offensive game. They had 66 offensive snaps. I think very few of them were for negative plays, but it is those plays that stand out. So I, I think the youth part is certainly notable. You can't overlook it. And I think good question from Johnny the K here. Um, and I do buy that as an impact, but I also think there's a lot of other factors at play here. I think we've touched on some of it from a just a, what a preparation, how different the preparation looks um, from an offseason perspective with a team that was, you know, look at, look at who's starting on offense and defense. It is not the same 22 guys as last year. And I think, I really think what Jalen Red stands out, said stands out is, is just this is a group that doesn't all have the reps and experience to go, hey, we are better than who we're facing. And that confidence and that, that swagger was something Oregon's team had last year that they seem to be lacking right now. And I think that is in part youth-related. And I, I do think a lot of Oregon's, from a on-field production standpoint, the guys that have opted out of this season, I don't think they necessarily solve all those problems. They help, um, but they, won't, they wouldn't solve all those problems. But the biggest impact is right here, is what we're talking about. Losing a Panay Sewell, losing yeah. a Javon Holland – a Thomas Graham and a Brady Breeze, all four guys, especially Panay Sewell and Javon Holland, both those two guys, especially, all, but all four of them had like a little bit of a swag about them and knew that that they were what Jalen Red is talking about, of having that confidence that you are the best player on the field at your position. You are better than the guy you're matching up against. And that kind of just trickle-down effect of hitting the rest of the team and giving that confidence across the board, that's where I think those guys are missed is going back to that leadership standpoint of making sure in practice things are going consistently at a high level and there are no peaks and valleys in practice and that on the field, the confidence is there and the skills that you have, that you are the best player, you are a dominant team, that's where those guys, I feel like, their value to this team is, is the most missed. And I think one thing I'll just say before we jump on to the second question here is I, I think in part we did overlook the impacts of losing so many of these opt-outs, not entirely because of a on-field production part, but the part you just said there, because you look at this and it was easy to say, well, they lose Thomas Graham, but Mikhail Wright is waiting in the rings, wings, and we think he is as good or maybe not quite, but he's close. He's a really talented player. Oh, they lose Brady Breeze, but Nick Pickett and Verone McKinley were both battling for reps with Brady Breeze, and it wasn't a sure thing that Brady Breeze even won that starting job, so they'll be fine there. But these are also players, and Javon Holland, we knew that was going to be an issue. I mean, Jamal Hill is a first-year starter. He has a lot of physical attributes, but these, those three players were moving them from a defense like that, along with the Troy Dye, and that one is the big one. 
it has a cumulative effect and Oregon is lacking some of that leadership. And I think like Jalen, Jalen Red said, some of that swagger that they had last year is just yep. missing. Um, and hopefully this wake up call against Oregon state is, is kind of, is what it is. It is a wake up call and it, and it gets them kind of with their heads turned the right direction as they, as they prepare this week for a California team who might be zero and three, but that is certainly a talented team that has given Oregon some fits the last couple of years. Second question from at drew goalie. What's the comparison between three and outs for the Oregon defense and offense? It seems like the offense isn't able to capitalize on the limited defensive three and outs. Now, I will give a lot of credit to Drew here. I had not recognized that this was an issue. I had not really done any research into this until he pointed it out. And I thought, hey, it's going to take me like a minute and a half to go look this up. You just look at the box scores. For those who are interested, it's pretty easy. You just look at the box scores on goducks.com. They have the drive charts. So I pulled this up here. Oregon has forced three, or sorry, eight three and outs defensively all season. Out of those eight three and outs, they've got one scoring drive from them. That's a pretty dismal ratio there. You force eight three and outs, but you're only able to turn that into one op- opportunity to score. Not opportunity, but one time where you actually do score some points. It should be better than that. Talk about, you kind of wonder why sometimes the momentum of these games goes the other direction as well. When the defense actually does go out, and it has been few and far between. Eight three and outs in two weeks, sorry, in four weeks, it is not what it needs to be. But you look at this. Against Stanford, they forced two. First one turns into an interception. The other one, end of the first half. Against Washington State, they forced two. One of them is against – one of them turns into a fumble um, by C.J. Verdell. The next one is the touchdown. It's the pass to Johnny Johnson in the third quarter. Against UCLA, they forced two. One results in that missed field goal by Camden Lewis. The next results in a punt. And then against Oregon State last week, two critical possessions there. They forced a three and out. Both result in punts. The second one, I think, really, like, that was an opportunity to build some momentum. Um, and, and just like we saw later in the game when they had the four, uh, they forced the turnover on downs with about two and a half minutes to go in regulation, and they, the offense comes out and can't, can't make anything from it. That three and out on Oregon State's first possession of the second half. Oregon State gets the ball to start the second half. Oregon defense forces a three and out. The Oregon offense then also a three and out. These opportunities here kind of get lost. And I know we've said the offense isn't the problem, and it isn't. The defense is, is where these games, I think, are mostly being lost. And, again, it's not – you can't point your fingers exa- at, at one specific player, one specific group only, because there are tons of plays throughout the game that, that result in these kind of outcomes. But I look at this and go, it is notable to me that when Oregon's defense has actually stepped up, done what it's supposed to do, gotten off the field, the Oregon offense just simply hasn't – done enough with it following that on it on the subsequent drives it's certainly interesting i mean i i think there's a lot of uh uncommon traits or uncharacteristic traits is a better word uh with this offense this season i mean they turn the football over a ton yep um and that is that goes against everything we've seen under Mario Cristobal in his first two seasons at Oregon. And they don't capitalize and punish opponents for turning the, the football over or, uh, you know, turning, giving the, the ball right back to Oregon when they, when they get a stop defensively with a three and out. Um, I think, and this going goes back to what we were talking about. The first question is that, Overall, and I think with the offense, it, it's hard to be ultra critical of. I, I need to say this: it's hard to be ultra critical um, of the Oregon offense right now because they're still putting up really good numbers you know, across the board. 
from a scoring standpoint, you know, they lead the conference in, in, in scoring. And uh, from a total offensive standpoint, they lead the conference in total yards. I mean, their yards per play is significantly better than everybody else. And, you know, Crystal Ball brought up the point of, you know, they were hoping to be in the 80s from a play perspective. And I asked Joe Moorhead that because they're in the 60s. And he was like, well, look, I'll trade 20, 20 plays for us to be able to score, you know, the, the most in the conference to have the best offense in the conference from a statistical standpoint. And, and yeah, I get that. And it's not kind of what I was going at with it, my question to him, but like you have to point that out that they are playing at a high level. But I think the thing with the offense is they could be even better. They could be yep. substantially better. And they're, which is, I think scary in a good way of, where this team could be at if they can put together a complete game. Cause offensively, Eric, I don't feel like they've played a game yet where you look at this and say, okay, maybe they had one or two or three bad drives, but over the course of the entire game from the, st- the start of the first quarter to the end of the fourth quarter, they played a really good game offensively. I don't think you could say that. No. It looked like they were going to, they were going to do that in the, in the, in the game against Oregon state through three quarters um, but then the fourth quarter, their offense just fell off a cliff. I mean, I don't know what happened there. And so I think for me, it's from an offensive standpoint, can you get this team to play consistent four quarters of football? Because if you do and you pair that with, even if the, the Oregon defense still has their issues, but they're still going to get a couple three and outs. They're still going to maybe get one turnover in a football game. Uh, if, if you can play a consistent brand of football, those three extra possessions, maybe you score 10 points and all of a sudden a seven point victory or a three point loss turns into a 17 point victory or a three or a three point win. Uh, And you don't lose to Oregon state. And that's where it goes back to the little things. Defense needs to smooth out their inconsistencies and, and create more three and outs. They need to create more turnovers. They need to create more big plays from a tackles per loss perspective and on the other side of the football, offensively, Oregon needs to be able to, to consistently play a, a four quarters of football and play your best football over that course of the, the, the game. There's just I, – I agree. I mean, the thing that is scary, and you, I think that's the right word, is you look at this offense and, and the statistics are, are really impressive for almost every stat besides for turnovers. And you, but you, you have to include the turnovers in here. These are if you if you sort out the turnover issues, you sort out what I was just talking about in terms of having these lulls in the games, and it seems to happen oftentimes after the defense actually makes some big plays. There is an opportunity here that you know Oregon's averaging a ton of points per game. There's an opportunity to average even more and to score even more and to be even more effective. And I think I think we're going to start hopefully seeing that. There's not a whole lot of time left in the season. We should note Cal and Washington are are certainly two of the better defenses Oregon will face this season, but you kind of look through the numbers and you think about it more and it's like, boy, they are, it's not that they're not that far away offensively from being really, really good, but it is this uneven performance. And I think the defense for the most part has probably, you'd say probably statted out pretty poorly. The offense is probably statted out pretty good, but there's just a lot of room for improvement on offense, even with what is a really impressive resume in a lot of areas so far this season. Eric, I think the offense is really good right now. I agree. Um, I mean, they're fifth in the country in yards per play at 7.51. And the leader in the country is Buffalo at eight. Alabama is second with 7.96. BYU is undefeated, 
and then Western Michigan at 7.84. I mean, Oregon's offense statistically, statistically, is averaging a better per play average than a Clemson, than an Ohio State, than a Notre Dame, than I'm trying to think of other big name teams. I mean, yeah, Cincinnati, they're undefeated. Um, let's see here, Florida. That's a that's a team that's in the contention for the national championship. Um, I mean, their offense is really good. And I think the if you could smooth out these inconsistencies, you don't go from you don't just become good or really good. I mean, you could become special good, like one in which maybe you have the most prolific offense in the entire country. And I think that's what Oregon is striving for, and that's attainable, but it has to, you know, this is where the youth shows up. They've got to smooth out these inconsistencies. They've got to smooth out, you know, the mistakes that just are, are killers, like that turnover against Oregon State with the pick. All right, third question here before we head to the break from at Jeremy one time. One time. One time. Here's the one time. (laughs) Do you think CJ Verdell should opt out and get his body ready for the NFL? Seems like around this time of year, the injury bug always gets to him. Hashtag odds and audibles. Thanks for using the hashtag, Jeremy. Are we talking about like CJ's just going to stop playing this season? Yes. We're we're saying that in college football across the board. Like Arkansas's star running back today. Uh, or yesterday opted out um, of the final two games of the season after having a big start to the year. And it's totally, Hey, I'm playing Alabama the end of the season. I don't want to look really terrible against probably the best defense in the country. So here we go. I'm protecting myself. So I think that's the, that's the, that's the, the basis of maybe the genesis of this question. I I get it, Jeremy. Um, I, I also think there has to be something said for like, the number of hits he takes over his career. Is he benefiting himself by playing right now? Um, I don't think – I don't know if he is. You off, but Go ahead. I don't think opting out helps him because I don't necessarily think this season for um, C.J. Verdell has really changed anything from a draft perspective. I think he's good. Um, you know, I mean, he, he – he leads the team in rushing yards with 277. He's got three touchdowns, which is tied for the lead with Cyrus Abilakia, who has seven carries. Um, but CJ is averaging 14, almost 15 carries a game. He's running for just under 70 yards a game. Um, but looking at him from a game perspective this season, like he had 100 yards his first two games each. But then he ran for 18 against UCLA and he ran for 36 against Oregon State. I mean, those are putrid numbers. And against Oregon State, he got nicked up, so he didn't, he didn't finish the game. Um, but I look at this and think from just a, a blunt perspective, and you know, I don't want to be ultra critical because I think he's really good, but I don't know if he's helped his stock where if he opts out now – I almost argue this year has hurt him more than it's helped him. I was just going to, I mean, where I was going to go was wouldn't it be more impressive for him to come back against Cal and Washington, who are the two best defenses Oregon's going to face all season and to put up big numbers. Yeah. I mean, he's, he has not performed well the last two weeks at all. He had two strong outings to start the season. He's had fumble problems this year. And I know, I think at least one of those was because of a mesh point thing. And you, you point the blame at him, even though Tyler Shuck's, 50, it's a 50-50 proposition. They're both at fault, but 
CJ is the one who has the technically has the ball in possession, even though he probably said he didn't even have possession when he lost it. But but he's but he has lost the ball twice. Um, he hasn't run the ball well at all the last two weeks. He struggled between the tackles. I know he's physically really impressive for his size, listed at 5'10", 210. Um, I noted it in the past. He was listed at 5'8 as a freshman. Apparently, he's grown two inches. I don't know if I can see that part. Maybe that, maybe that <laughs> I'd was really just, like to challenge that. I'd, yeah, I'd like, uh, and again, I, I also say, I haven't seen him in person this year because of the COVID thing. So uh, maybe he's actually just shot up a couple inches, but I always found that to be interesting. I, I, to, to me, my perspective is similar to Matt is like, I think, what has he done this season to really improve his draft stock? And if anything, has he maybe heard it? I mean, like, and I know it's, 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 it varies how an NFL team is going to look at this. And maybe there are teams that are going to say, Hey, he was really good at times as a sophomore. And, and, and I guess not to cut myself off here, but like you look at his career, there's no consistency at all yep. from yeah. any, any point in his career. I mean, he, he is not part of that's who, injury. Part of that's just lack of production. But I mean, but like, it's just, it's just, it's pretty wild. Like even go back to last year, he ran for like 1200 yards. Like here are his yards per game. He started with 76 against Auburn. I'm not even going to say the opponent. I'll just run through the 76, 60, 13, 82, 46, 171, 48, 257, 12, 49, 99, 50, 208, and then 49. I mean, so it's three games where he runs for over 170 yards. He doesn't even get more than hundred yards. The rest of those games, you go back to 2018, um, we all know what he did in the Oregon State game where he ran for 187 yards. But the rest of the season, it was 51, 106, 42, 115, 106, 111. So that three-game stretch there of 115, 106, 111, by far the most consistency of his career. Because, but then he follows that with 55, 14, 90, 28, 70, the 187 against Oregon State, and then 43. So I, mean, I look at him and go, like, I, I think what would really benefit, benefit C.J. Verdell, and again, it, it is part – part of it is health part of it is just production is like going out and finishing his career. If you think this is the finish of his career. And I, I'm probably convinced that that's the case. Cause there's a running back. I don't think you want to maximize. You don't want to take too many hits. Right. But like, I think if he goes out and in, in these last three, I guess four games, they're going to play in a bowl game. We think um, if he goes out and runs for over a hundred plus yards and all those games, I think that's going to improve his stock more than saying, Hey, I'm going to just, protect my body and i don't even think that's on cj's radar personally from just from what we know of him having conversations with him before the season where he said he didn't even consider opting out how he wanted to run for a thousand yards and there's a level of pride here with him to really have an impressive finish to his career at oregon i don't think it's on his radar but i also think like if it is on his radar my suggestion would be i think it's going to help his draft stock more to come back and just dominate um, and of course, the other flip side of that is what if he comes out and just continues to not play very well and they just roll with Travis die, even when CJ is quote unquote healthy, that might hurt his stock. But I think there's more to be gained by playing than not playing. Well, what, what, let's flip the script here. Okay. More likely CJ in the final, let's just say four games of the season, he plays against Cal plays against Washington, the cross divisional matchup for the seventh regular season game, and then Oregon plays in the bowl game. So four more games. What would be more impactful for him, you think, and what's more likely that happens? CJ has an insane four-game run. Maybe he runs for 400 yards. Maybe he doesn't hit four straight 100-yard games, but he you know he accumulates 400 yards rushing in the next four weeks. Maybe tacks on five touchdowns or three touchdowns. Um, maybe a hundred or so receiving yards or is it beneficial more beneficial for him to come back as a senior 
and, and try and do it again and, and try and give a full 12, 13, 14, 15 game season. And you show the consistency when you haven't been able to do it the three years, what's more impactful, what's more likely you feel like. Um, it's hard. I mean, likely is hard to suggest. I mean, I, I do think it's going to be difficult to put up big rushing stats against Cal and Washington. Those are strong rushing defenses. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not putting it against him because we also said the same thing about Utah last year and look what he did. That was the top rushing defense in the PAC 12 hadn't given up a hundred yard rusher all season. And then he goes and has an historic day. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities. He does that again. Um, I think if, if I'm CJ, Verde, I probably, and again, this is also dependent upon like what, I don't, we don't have the information he has in terms of what the NFL scouts are saying about him. Um, do they see him right now in the 2021 NFL draft as a second or a second round or second day guy, I should say, second, third, fourth round pick? Or are they being like, you have a lot to improve upon and, and we think you know, you're going to be back end of the sixth or seventh round or undrafted? And if it's the latter, he should come back, I think, as a senior. I don't think he's done enough this season to really improve his stock. Um, that can change. I mean, he could finish on a tear like you suggested. I don't think that's like the craziest thing. But I also think like the way his season has gone so far, and I know it's hard because it's a six, it's a, we've played four out of six games in the regular season, and two of them has been pretty good. Two of them has been pretty not good, to, to, to put it mildly. So it's, maybe it's unfair, but like I don't think he's had a very good junior season. I, I, this has been underwhelming, especially the last two weeks. I mean, Oregon State's defense has not been good against the run. And for him to accumulate, I know he got injured and missed part of the second half, but for him to only get 36 yards rushing, he has certainly, this is what he hasn't done. He has not put away the notion that he's injury prone and that injuries will knock him out of games. I mean, we've, that was the thing last year. He missed like five second halves in Pac 12 games. Well, he's missed, he won, he missed one against Oregon State where I don't know, I don't know if he's indifferent in the game, but certainly if he could have picked up a couple first downs there, the game might have gone differently. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's take a quick break. Uh, you're listening to the Austin Audible's podcast, Mailbag Edition. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome back to the Awesome Audible's podcast. I'm Matt Premier, Scopel on the show as always. Your questions, your, our answers to everything about Oregon Athletics, three and three more to go. All right, fourth from at Robbie Parness. Is the Pac-12 officially the weakest Power 5 conference now? In the past, we could make arguments that a few really good teams at the top plus depth in the middle helped make a case over the ACC or the Big 12. But this year, it seems like a pretty weak through, it's pretty weak throughout. Thoughts? Hashtag odds and audibles. Thanks for using the hashtag, Robbie. Um, 
Well, I think we can certainly remove the ACC from this discussion, considering the fact that they are probably almost best positioned to have two teams in the yeah. college football playoff, or they have a pretty good shot right now. It helps, though, that Notre Dame is a exactly. one-time entry into the ACC. Like Next year, they won't be in the ACC, so that kind of devalues for, the league again. But, but for this year, let's yes, include Notre yes. Dame, this yes. year, ACC is above. So it comes down to me, and I think we can are probably all safely say the SEC and the Big Ten are, are pretty pretty clearly the better are better conferences. It, it, this is a Pac-12 versus Big 12 argument. And for me, I don't think the Big 12 has done it. I mean, like, we can really get down on the Pac-12 because the Pac-12 hasn't performed very well. But, like, for me, I don't look at the Big 12 and be like, they're significantly better. Like, I mean, like, because their top teams are struggling too. It's not like Oklahoma. I mean, we, we talk about how much Oregon has struggled. We talk about USC and Washington not being all that impressive. It's not like Oklahoma and Texas have really been, like, super impressive either. Right. And it's not like we think that the, the bottom teams in the West conferences are great either. I, I mean, you, I mean, you look at that. I, I look at the Big 12 and don't think, oh, well, they're better than the Pac 12. I, I, I really, and I think this kind of gets overlooked, but I think those two conferences, like right now, you've got the SEC, ACC, and Big 10. Those three conferences are clearly the top three conferences. And then I really think the Big 12 and the Pac 12 are kind of side by side as a step behind. And I don't think either of those teams really factors into the national discussion this year. I know we've talked in the past about how. You can talk all you want about the Pac-12 struggles in the college football playoffs, and it's it's valid. I mean, they haven't been in there very much, but it's not like when Oklahoma has played in the Pac in the college football playoff that they've been really impressive. It's been completely the opposite. They've pretty much been embarrassed year after year. I don't think anything that's happened this year makes me go, yeah, the Big 12 is better. I mean, you look at Texas; they're probably looking to make a coaching change. Um, I don't know, Matt, do you agree or disagree? I, I just look at it and say like, okay, there's the, the top three. And then I think Pac-12 and the Big 12 are, are basically on even footing right now. Yeah. I mean, I do think, I mean, the college football playoff committee certainly gave more um, credit, more cachet to Oklahoma, who is, you know, the biggest name within the Big 12 this season. And frankly, every year. Um, I mean, the college football playoff rankings are going to change. And we should note that, you know, we're doing these rankings or we're doing yeah. this podcast uh, before the rankings come out on Tuesday, but we're releasing the podcast after they come out. So we don't quite know the, the college football playoff rankings, but just from a week one perspective um, of the college football playoff, if, if we looked at, those rankings that were released, I mean, a two loss Iowa state team was ranked higher than an undefeated at the time, three and O Oregon team. Um, I mean, we, we, we saw a two loss Oklahoma team ranked higher than uh, undefeated at the time, three and O Oregon team from an AC, from a big 12 perspective. Um, you, you look down the list of schools also in the big 12. I mean, Oklahoma State was in there. Um, you know, Texas was in there. They had four teams um, in the Big 12 in that ranking, and the Pac-12 had two. So, I mean, I would almost argue that that the Pac-12 in of itself is probably a slight step below the Big 12, and that's concerning. Like, we knew the league was going to be at a disadvantage going into the year because they were playing seven. Everybody else was playing eight to 12 games. Um, and I just look at this and think the league itself, I mean, it's two powerhouse programs going into the year, Oregon and USC. 
they have not performed at a high level going into the year. They have not looked like barn burners. They have not looked like, you know, the elite of the elite. And they've, they've looked more, you know, parody-esque in the Pac-12 where everyone can beat anyone. And that's not a good thing. You, you need dominant teams. You, I mean, you want parody from like 10 to 7 or excuse me, 10 to like four. And then you want your third and second and best team in the conference to be significantly better than the rest, but all equal to each other within that top three. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's not like Oklahoma has been particularly impressive in big 12 games either. They've lost to Kansas state to Iowa state. That's the premier team. And I know what the college football playoff ranking says. I think that was in part because at the time, Oklahoma had played eight games. Iowa State played eight games. Oregon and USC had played a combined six games. Um, I don't. I'll be. I'll be. Again, we're recording this before. I'll be curious to see what the next iteration looks like. Pac-12 did itself no favors. I'm going to guess Washington might be the highest rated of the teams, just because at this point, Oregon's lost a game. Um, USC hasn't played another game. Washington beat Utah, etc. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what those, how those rankings reflect it. I don't know if that's the most fair way to really measure this. I just think the big 12 is like, there's not a team without, and, and I don't know the number of games is different here, but I just haven't seen anything from them that makes me go like they're better than the pac 12. I, I mean, and I know, again, this is a weird year. It's a wacky year. I, I don't, I don't think it's really fair to really measure the conferences based upon this year either. I mean, I think true. That's true. You look, you look at last year. Pac-12 didn't fare particularly well at times in bowl games or in preseason games at the same time. Like, it's not like the top teams in the Pac-12 went out and got embarrassed. I guess that's not totally fair because I guess USC did get embarrassed pretty good. What was it by Iowa in their bowl game? But, but or, I mean, you know, I, I think it, it's, it's clear that Oregon and the Pac-12 are not on equal footing with the top teams. It's very clear, and that's very concerning. You see it from a recruiting perspective all the time. I just haven't seen enough this year to be like the big 12 is clearly better than the Pac 12. I haven't. And I think, I think they're pretty even, I think. And it's a big drop off to me from those top conferences down to those two to me, at least. All right. Fifth question. Now we're shifting gears to, to Matt's specialty men's basketball from at Travis Heidi. Is there any precedence for waiver decisions taking as long as they have for Figaro and Estrada? Estrada announced his decision in April, Figueroa in June. I would assume both being enrolled and filed waiver claims then by the beginning of July at the latest. That's five to eight months. Matt, let's just note here, it, we're, this podcast is being released on the day of Oregon's first game of the season in Omaha against Seton Hall. And yet, here we are. No idea if these two players who are very talented players, we should know, like guys who could be really instrumental on this season, no idea if they're playing or not. It seems like they're not playing the first game for sure. Yeah, I mean, they're traveling to Omaha. Dana Altman said a new rule by the NCAA has cleared them to travel. Um, I mean, maybe by some miracle, we record this on Tuesday afternoon and between Tuesday evening and Wednesday night, the NCAA makes a waiver request and approves of it. Uh, I mean, CJ Walker, who transferred from Oregon to UCF, he played last night or two nights ago on, on Monday night. Um, he played in his first game for UCF. Uh, we, we see transfer requests across the country from low major to mid major to high major. 
Uh, and all of these guys are getting cleared. And meanwhile, Oregon is just sitting here twiddling their thumbs being like, Hey guys, uh, what about us? Like what, what's going on? Kind of, kind of ridiculous to be honest with you. Um, there's no reason why it, it should have taken this long for the NCAA to decide one way or the other. And quite frankly, like what is there to decide? Like it's COVID. Uh, everyone gets a year back anyways. Yeah. So why would you not just automatically approve everybody? Like, I, I, I think that's the, the, the weird thing for me here is that the NCAA has come out and said, Hey, you know what? Everybody gets a free, free, free run this season. This year does not count towards your eligibility. You're, you're a senior in 2020. Well, in 2021, 2022, you're a senior again. If you want to be, if you want to come back and, and have a normal senior season, if you're a true freshman, this year, you know what? You can preserve your red shirt and you can still be a true freshman next season and have a normal freshman year because we don't know the we don't know if we're going to get this season off. We don't know if we're going to play a full season. We don't have the experience with fans for everybody. We don't know if we're going to have full you know arenas uh, at, at any point this season. So let's just give everyone kind of a, a one-time deal where it's a do-over. Why are we even debating this right now? Like if the player is academically eligible, if he's a good citizen, a good human being and wasn't suspended for any reason uh, or in any kind of legal issues with his previous school. And with the fact that everyone gets a free pass in 2020, 2021 season because of COVID-19 and we're not getting a normal year in college basketball. What's the harm in just saying, you know what, like this guy is going to be here next year. Anyways, let's let him play. Like players across the country are getting their eligibilities cleared um both Estrada and Figueroa don't have uh you know they weren't suspended from the previous schools they weren't kicked out they didn't have academic issues uh, like there's no reason why this shouldn't have been decided a long time ago in it favor like, of them playing too it, it just seems like they're creating a lot more work for themselves I mean like it, it why not just grant and like honestly I think this is too complicated year in year out why 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 is this it makes no sense I mean like here's an example like Oregon Oregon women have played two games. Tyler, Taylor Mikesell, she transferred on May 16th to Oregon. She was approved in late July, and she scored 28 points and hit eight threes in Oregon's first game on Saturday. She had 11 points, hit a couple of big threes against Portland on Monday. It's like, why is she eligible to play this year, and yet Figueroa um, and Estrada are not? And like even like last year, why was Sedona Prince not allowed to play? I mean, like all of this stuff, it just seems like it's all very arbitrary. There's no explanation really given. And I feel bad for these student athletes, and I feel bad for the program. We're about to get to the sixth question here, which ties into this, so I'll, I'll read that in a second. But it's just frustrating when you're trying to build a season when there's already so many obstacles to have. Like, there needs to just be some finality when a season starts. It's December 1st, for crying out loud. Like, how, 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 do we not, how do we not know who's able to play and not play? This is the only – I mean, like, you don't see this happen in professional sports and you really don't see this happen in, in college football. Like it seems like college basketball is the only time where we really see these bizarre a player transfers and you're not sure when he's able, he or she, we should say are able to play. And the fact that this is dragging into the season is just maddening. And I'm sure Dane Altman won't say it publicly, but I'm sure <laughs> behind the scenes, he's like, this is, this is, this is BS. This is crap. Like what's going on here. Why can't we at least know how to proceed with these two players um, going forward? It just seems ridiculous. And I mean, Looking at this thing and, and what's going on here, and this kind of goes into our next question here, but 
this sets up a deal where Oregon only has nine scholarship players going into the year. Like that's, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and like freak out that they don't have enough depth because they do. They have, and they're extremely, they're an older team too, but they're literally, you know, an injury away from all of a sudden being like, Whoa, we're in, we're in some trouble here. So let's tie into this. Uh, the final question here from at March madness, 83 without waivers granted. And this is what Matt just said. Dan Altman will have nine scholarships to play, the fewest since Altman's first year. Summer discussion was too many cooks in the kitchen, and now the Ducks are a sprained ankle away from a very short bench. Is Kepnong joining the roster this season? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. And this jumps right into it, Matt, kind of a natural progression to where we were just about to go. But the reality is, yeah, we were talking in the the offseason of like at guard in particular of like, oh my gosh, like. How are they who's going to start? How are they going to figure this out? And now, if Estrada and Figueroa aren't eligible, at least for the first few games of the season here, or maybe not at all, uh, Oregon's, yeah, they're in a tight spot here. I mean, we've watched the Oregon women now, not to bring them up too much here, but like the flip side here is we've watched the Oregon women play the last two nights, their first two games of the season. They've, had, they've played 13 players. They've played 12 players in a regular rotation. They've got like six to seven quality guards. You look at the men right now, and it's like they only have nine players available, period. Um, what's your perspective on this? I know, I mean, there's, and it's not like they're starting the season. We talked about this from a football perspective of like how it shifts the expectations of like when you play Iowa or, you know, Idaho state or Portland state to open a football season, like the Oregon men's basketball program is opening with two major college conference or major conference opponents in Seton hall and Missouri. Um, only having nine players available seems like it could really hamstring them. No. Yeah, Dana Almond's come out and he's like, I'll be brutally honest, like we might get exposed on Wednesday and Friday. I, it's like, I don't know what to expect. We haven't had a normal offseason. We haven't had a normal training camp, you know, and we're going into playing two really tough games. And he didn't like seem like it was like he was really concerned about that. Like he understands and he's come out and said like we're just behind schedule in terms of playing. Like he, he, he went out and noted that, you know, normally we would have played – uh, a secret scrimmage against Oklahoma. That's what they do every year. Yep. Uh, Long Krugers is one of his best friends, and uh, he's the head coach at Oklahoma. But in a normal year, he said we would have scrimmaged Oklahoma somewhere in Vegas. We would have had an exhibition game back home in Eugene. We would have then played you know, two, three, or four, probably more like five games up until this point of the season and gone into this game kind of knowing who we are. We, we've, we've had a couple scrimmages. We have an exhibition game. We have a secret scrimmage against another opponent. And we've played some games. And we may have some weaknesses exposed. But at the same time, we've kind of worked through things. And we're, you know, we're starting that process of building our program up and getting ourselves ready for the big run at the end of the year. And we're making progress. And he goes, now we don't really know where we're at. We don't know, you know what we have, who, 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 who can do what and where and when and you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And he, he says, I think we have a good team. I, I hope we have a good team. He, he said that, you know, he, this team is talented and they're older veteran players and they know what's expected of them. But at the same time, you don't really have a way to simulate games. And that's the best way that you get a read on your team. You get a best way to figure out where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and, and how to compensate for both of those. And going into tonight's game against Missouri, they, they don't have any of that. And so like, I look at this and, you know, is this going to hurt Oregon? If they stay healthy or even if they have one guy get down with an injury. Um, I mean, 
obviously some players are different than others. Like if Infali Dante all of a sudden has an injury and he can't play for half the year, that's a huge, huge adjustment for Oregon. Um, if, a, if a wing player gets hurt, you know, before these waivers get approved, is that going to hurt Oregon? Yes. All injuries are going to hurt any team, but there are positions. There are guys that are a little bit less expendable and there are a little bit more expendable than other guys. And, and so my whole point though is, is that Alma typically plays eight, maybe nine guys anyways. And so right now it's easy peasy. Like you have nine guys, you like to play around eight or nine guys, but everyone fits into a spot. You add in Figueroa, you add in Estrada that then creates a little bit of competition between maybe that seventh guy, that eighth guy, that ninth guy, that 10th guy, and that 11th guy, those six players are really competing in practice every single night because, hey, if I have a couple bad practices, I'm not going to play. Or, hey, if I have a week of really good practice and then maybe I show up in a game and I get four or five minutes and I play well, the next week I could I could steal someone's minutes and, and maybe play 12 minutes that next game. Um, I, I don't know if it's going to hurt Oregon, you know, game to game just because Altman always likes to play eight or nine guys. But, yeah, it, it creates an, an issue where – if there's a major injury, it could really hurt. As for Frank Capang, yeah, the plan is for him to be in Eugene December 12th. So about 10 days from now, he should be in. He should be here. Um, that's the same day that Oregon plays, uh, I believe, Washington in Seattle. So he probably won't be uh, at that game playing for Oregon. But you know, they'll get a couple weeks of of him without school going on in December and, and see how quickly they get him adjusted and up to speed and. You know, he'll probably play. I, I don't know why he wouldn't. Is he going to play more than five or ten minutes a game? Probably not. It's wild stuff. It's wild stuff. And and we should note Matt's going to have full coverage throughout this week for the men's team. I will have full coverage of the women's team, which opens up back to a play as wacky as this year has gone. Um, the Oregon women open conference play on Friday against Colorado. They then go or they then they play their second conference game on Sunday against Utah, both games at Matthew United Arena. Don't have tip times for either of those games, which has made it kind of hard for us. To, uh, uh, six o'clock for the men on Friday, six o'clock tonight, Wednesday. For so the men. men the men know when they're playing. The women, no idea. Um, they'll be playing on those <laughs> dates, though. Um, so it's going to be a busy a busy week on the website in terms of we'll have a lot of men's coverage, we'll have women's coverage, we'll have football coverage on Saturday. We think that game's going to be played in Berkeley, but with what's going on from a uh, county perspective down there. Who knows where that's going to be played, et cetera. But um, yeah, that game I'll, is set for four o'clock. But like you said, like <laughs> Eric, honestly, like it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if uh, Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning we wake up and there's an email in our inboxes from the Pac-12 saying we have moved the game to Eugene or the game is postponed till Sunday or or just po- postponed in general. That that wouldn't surprise me either. Um, just the way things are, are playing out right now. Um, but just to give people an idea, like there's been a lot of people on duckterritory.com online, um, that have been wanting basketball coverage, um, men, uh, they want, you've done a really good job of, you know, presenting the, you know, the stuff that's out there from a women's side, the men's side, they've only made Dana Altman available. Um, and so my coverage has been a little bit limited just because of that, but, like literally everyone's like, when, when are they playing? What's going on? Like just to kind of give you a behind the scenes of how crazy this year for basketball is going to be is Oregon had four different 
situation set up and agreed upon where they were going to play in an MTE. That's a multi-team event. They were going to go. So they, three of those were three of those MTEs were out of state. One of them was in Florida, the originally scheduled game. Then they were going to go to Disney World and play in that ESPN bubble. Then they were going to go to Connecticut and they were going to play in Bubbleville. And then they were going to have one in Eugene. And all four of those fell through um, for various reasons. Oregon's latest one, which was back east, fell through last week around Thanksgiving. Um, and then Oregon quickly tried to see, okay, can we, can we get someone to come in over the weekend? And maybe we'll play a game here. And, oh, by the way, their season opener on the 25th, uh, 25th of, December, of November is canceled because of COVID reasons related to Eastern Washington. Dana Altman's like, hey, I'm not angry. I'm not upset. You know, I'm frustrated. I wanted to play. Um, there's no ill will towards Eastern Washington. I hope they all get healthy. You know, we totally understand why this game is postponed. Okay. So that's in about two days, you've lost an MTE. You've lost your season opener. The governor in the state of Oregon, for whatever reason, did not allow Portland and Portland state to uh, practice and play and get themselves ready. And Portland state uh, was supposed to come to Eugene Friday, uh, Saturday night or Sunday morning and play Oregon and get them and, and, and play a non-conference game uh, the, the Saturday after Thanksgiving. Well, they called Oregon and said, look, we just got clearance again. We haven't been able to practice for two weeks. We don't really know if we're, it, it, you know, how much we can even do. And it just probably wouldn't be beneficial for you. It probably wouldn't be beneficial for us. And it wouldn't be health safety wise for us from non COVID related reasons for us to come down and play you guys on Sunday or even Monday, we just aren't going to be ready to play. Um, and Oregon understood, uh, but, but again, they were frustrated. And then, Monday afternoon, Monday morning, we get notified that from Oregon, hey, we're having a press conference in about 45 minutes to an hour. Uh, we're leaving on Tuesday in less, than, in less than 24 hours to go to Omaha to play in a game against Missouri. And oh, by the way, we're also going to play Seton Hall uh, on Friday. Like that's literally how this season is, is going to go from a scheduling non-conference standpoint for, for people. So if you're out there like scrambling or why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? Like literally the season is flipping on a dime for both sides almost on a day by week basis. It's wild. It's wild. And like, like, we, like I said earlier, the women don't know their schedule yet. Matt, we're trying to get, Matt to come over to Matthew Nutt Arena to shoot photos for a women's game, but we can't coordinate it yet because we don't know if there's going to be an overlap in time on Friday because of an un uh, and again we're like three days away from the Pac-12 opener. There's no time scheduled that for the women's perspective. I'm trying to figure out if Sunday makes more sense, but we don't know what time that's going to start. Um, so like all of this is just completely up in the air. It's it's complete chaos, but it'll be fun to track. It'll be fun to follow, and it'll be really fun for and I'm hoping this happens soon, Matt, for the the men can actually play a basketball game on Wednesday. Let's all knock on wood, cross our fingers and toes and hopes that comes together. Uh, the women have already played twice. Um, it's about to be the busiest time of the year for us all in really quick order. And the chaos of it certainly adds to, I'll call it the fun, even though it's not that fun for either of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's you said, you said it best. It's going to be the crazy part of the year. Hopefully we get it. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's stressful, but deep down, it's awesome. To, it's awesome to go through and cover football, recruiting, uh, men's and women's basketball, all of it, all at one time. And you can read all about it on duckterritory.com. So thank you for listening. Thank you for submitting your questions. Ferris Scopel, 
on the podcast. I'm Matt Prem. You've been listening to the Odds Models podcast. Talk to you later, folks.